We've been away from Ecclesiastes for a couple of weeks on Wednesday night, so I invite you to come back and we will re-engage with Ecclesiastes. And we also have three young men that are joining on Wednesday night, so we're looking forward to hearing their testimonies also. So if you've not been with us on a Wednesday night, please feel free to come and we will re-engage with Ecclesiastes. This morning we are in John 8, where we find Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. During an earlier visit, back in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda. On that occasion, Jesus claimed to be one with the Father, infuriating the Jewish leadership. And the Jews unsuccessfully sought to kill Jesus. Jesus has now returned to David's city to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, culminated with a water ceremony thanking the Creator for the provision of life-sustaining rains. And Jesus suddenly commandeered the whole ceremony, claiming that He was the water of life. And if that was not offensive enough to the Jews, Jesus went on to proclaim that He was the light of the world. When questioned by the Pharisees, Jesus once again identified Himself, as He had in John 5, with The Father. He was sent by the Father, and the Father was his witness. Now, at the feast, the Jews attempted to arrest Jesus, but they failed. And John gave us two explanations for this failure. On the human side, the temple guard who came to arrest Jesus came back empty handed, saying, No one ever spoke like that man. On the divine side, however, John explains, his hour had not yet come. We come now to the ensuing conversation between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, beginning with verse 21. We'll read right down through verse 30. Verse 21, John chapter 8. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. 
Now in verse 21, that little word again indicates a continuity between the section we just read and the previous section where Jesus has been conversant with the Jews. And Jesus is still discussing where he comes from, where he is going, and who the Father is. And there's a very interesting contrast in these verses between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. What is true of Jesus, the opposite is true of the Jewish leadership. Jesus is from above, they are from below. Jesus is not of this world, they are from this world. Where Jesus goes, they cannot come. Now, this startling contrast between the two will soon become overheated. In verse 41, the Jews will accuse Jesus of being born in sexual immorality. And Jesus, for his part, responds in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. So clearly, this conversation is not a friendly rabbinic dialogue between Torah scholars holding differing interpretations. This conversation represents the collision of two worldviews. Two religions are at stake. And the passage culminates in verse 59 with yet another attempt on Jesus' life. Look at the text. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In 1923, J. Gresham Machen published a work called Christianity and Liberalism, one of the most influential books in the 20th century. The context concerned the great controversy between liberalism and fundamentalism. In the 1920s and 30s, fundamentalism was a synonym for evangelical orthodoxy. It stood for a commitment to the scripture, particularly for the supernatural character of Scripture. Fundamentalists insisted on the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And Machen's main point in Christianity and liberalism was that liberalism was not a variation on Orthodox Christianity, not at all. Liberalism did not function the way denominational differences function in the church today, not at all. Liberalism was an entirely different religion. Machen wrote, The great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. Well, that statement really mirrors the situation here in John chapter 8. Jesus and the Jews have a shared history, a shared culture, a shared terminology. They read the same scriptures. They traced their roots back to Abraham. They believed in the coming Messiah. Nevertheless, Jesus and the Jews espouse, in the words of Machen, a totally diverse type of religious belief. Their differences become quite apparent as we work back through the passage. Let's go back to verse 21 and just work carefully through the text and let these differences emerge. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away. 
And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin where I am going, you cannot come. Now when Jesus refers to going away, he is referring to his death. He will later explain that by means of death, he is going to return to the Father. And when Jesus says, you will seek me, he does not mean these same Jews will later seek to become his followers. It's not what he's saying. Rather, they will go right on just blindly seeking a Messiah who will never appear. They will die in their sin, unredeemed by a Messiah because they failed to embrace Jesus as the true Messiah. You're going to go right on seeking, you'll never find me. You're going to die in your sin. And notice in verse 21 how Jesus refers to their sin in the singular. It's not plural. Later in verse 24, Jesus referred to their sins plural, but here it's singular. When Jesus refers to their sin singular, he's referring to the singular sin of unbelief. Ultimately, friends, there is one Sin. One sin that prevents a person from becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ. One sin. What is it? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, belief in Jesus Christ does indeed bring about a cancellation of our numerous sins through his atonement. That is true. But it is ultimately that singular sin of unbelief that, present, that prevents a person from embracing Christ. It holds people back. Now the Jews' unbelief becomes evident in verse 22, where they display ignorance of the kind of death that Jesus will die. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews wonder whether Jesus is plotting his own suicide. They are not thinking about the possibility of an atonement through sacrifice. And Jewish scholars considered suicide to be a very dark and grievous sin. Is he going to go kill himself? Now, of course, the Jews were wrong. The, Jesus never committed suicide. However, they do make an important connection that you don't want to miss. They're not entirely wrong. They're wrong, but not entirely wrong. The Jews correctly interpret Jesus to be saying that there was a volitional aspect to his death. Jesus did say, I am going away. As if he's in charge here. And that's the phrase the Jews latched onto. Why would Jesus refer to his death with the phrase, I am going away? Is Jesus deliberately planning his departure, his death? Did Jesus actually plan his death? Yes, he did. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. Jesus journeyed deliberately to Jerusalem as a sacrificial lamb on the final Passover. And if you recall from Matthew's Gospel, he made this really, really clear. Jesus predicted his death in Jerusalem, Matthew 16. Then he set his face on Jerusalem and marched straight into the city. 
to lay down his life as a sacrifice. Jesus' death, friends, was no suicide, but it was voluntary. Jesus will later say in John 10, listen to these words very carefully, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Clearly, his death was voluntary. In fact, friends, it had to be because Jesus is life itself. He is the Logos, and the Logos is life. No one can deprive Jesus of life because he is life. He is the I am. He is life itself. He is self-existent. He had to lay down his life voluntarily. And if you recall from Matthew's account of the crucifixion, Matthew twice pointed to the volume of Jesus' voice on the cross, and that is highly significant. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew says his voice was loud. And this was at the ninth hour, the hour that Jesus died. Matthew also tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he deliberately yielded up his spirit. Well, crucifixion victims died of exhaustion coupled with asphyxiation. Often it took several days to die. As the body wore away, less and less oxygen could be taken into the lungs. Muscles could no longer force those lungs to open and contract again and breathe air in. This is an excruciating way to die because it just slowed down the death process to the point you're experiencing death, but you couldn't even speak. The cross victim ultimately suffocated in the sea of oxygen. He simply had no energy left to inhale. And those who witnessed crucifixions knew that the victim's speech volume faded as his energy waned. With no air in his lungs, one certainly did not cry out with a loud voice. When the victim ultimately crossed that ragged border between life and death was always a mystery. Crucifixion victims always died in silence. With one exception. Jesus filled his lungs with air. He roared with a loud voice and he laid down his life voluntarily within a surprisingly short time. Six hours. That's remarkable. Usually it took days. Jesus laid down his life voluntarily. In full possession of his life, he voluntarily yielded up his spirit. Jesus, friends, authoritatively commanded the precise moment of his death. It's no wonder the centurion exclaimed, truly this was the Son of God. He'd never seen anything like that before. Friends, at death, we lose all mastery over ourselves. But not Jesus. Jesus retained his authority not only to lay down his life, but actually to take it up again. 
Well, how is that even possible? Answer, he's one with the Father. That's what he keeps on telling us. I am one with God the Father. I am. That's how that's possible. Now, all of that explains why Jesus' words in verse 21 were so confusing to the Jews. He spoke of his death as a going away. Well, what other human ever legitimately spoke of his death that way? His death was not a termination. His death was not an annihilation. It was not a suicide. It was a, voluntarily, a voluntary, if temporary, suspension of his life. And as such, Jesus could speak of his death as merely going away. Likewise, he could speak of going to a place where the Jews could not come. Now, verse 23 sheds additional light on his meaning. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Well, clearly, Jesus is no ordinary human being who goes the way of all flesh. Jesus' death was not the end. It was actually a return. We know, of course, that his death inaugurated his return to his glory and to his enthronement. He was no ordinary creature from here below at all. He was from above. Now, be careful here not to assume that Jesus is teaching what used to be called Neoplatonism or Gnosticism. Those aren't the same thing, by the way. But both teach the idea that the spirit world above, that upper world above, is better than the physical world below. And that the goal is to leave the physical world behind and return to the spiritual world. Well, Jesus, don't forget, returned to heaven with a body a bodily resurrection. What Jesus is doing here in verse 24 is he is demarcating between the realm of God and the realm of this fallen, rebellious creation. To remain in this realm below, in verse 24, is to die in your sins. And notice here the plural sins. To fall into the great sin singular of unbelief is to die under the weight, plural, of all your sins. Unbelief leaves us, friends, with the full consequences of our sins. To fail to believe is to have all of your sins remain in the here below. And the only alternative in verse 24 is to believe. To believe that I am He. And do you recognize that expression, I am He? I hope you do. We've talked about this previously. It's one of several instances in John where Jesus somewhat cryptically claims to be Yahweh. In the Greek, it's literally I am. He is the great I am. The phrase can certainly be taken that way, but does Jesus intend for us to take it that way? Well, the phrase is a bit subtle here. Look at how the chapter ends. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the same phrase as in verse 24. And how do the Jews interpret that? Next verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Well, clearly, Jesus is associating himself with Yahweh, the great I Am, and that's why the Jews want to stone him. Now, in verse 24, there's still a little bit of question in the Jews' mind about what he means by I Am. Hence, they ask for clarification. And that comes in verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? Again, the ambiguity of the statement, I am he, certainly prompts this question. So how will he answer? Who are you? Well, keep reading. Here's his answer. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. In other words, this is not the first time the Jews have asked him about his identity. And his testimony has been consistent all the way along. Everything about Jesus' ministry, from his preaching to his miracles to his private conversation, has just consistently revealed him to be the Son of God. He sent from the Father. I've been telling you all the way along. On multiple occasions, he has associated himself with God the Father. How many more times does he need to explain it? Now, Jesus follows through with his own statement in verse 26. And it might actually be a little bit opaque. Let's read it. Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, Jesus seems to be saying, there is much more I could say about you. I have much to say about you, much to judge. That's what he's saying. He seems to be implying that what I have to say about you would indeed be a word of judgment. I have a lot of judging of you I could do at this point. But on the other hand, Jesus is willing, second half of the verse, to answer their question once more, once more now concerning his identity. So once again, he implies that he's sent from the Father. His role is to come into the world and declare to the world that he has heard from the Father. Now, in verse 26, he does not use the term Father, but he was indeed speaking of his being sent from the Father. And how do we know that? Next verse. John says, they did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So once again, just as in chapter 5, the Jewish leadership fails to understand Jesus. This man has truly come from the Father, but they don't understand. It's no wonder then when Jesus uses words or terms like water of life and light of the world, they just they don't understand him at all. They set about to kill him. Now friends, admittedly, Jesus' statements are at times a little bit cryptic, a little bit ambiguous when you read them. Jesus did not always fully disclose himself to people. Jesus used illustrations and metaphors that people often have a great deal of trouble trying to understand. Like, what did he mean by that? John the Baptist, if you recall, wondered, are you he that should come or do we look for another? The disciples struggled to understand Jesus. Even in hindsight, when we read back to the Gospels and we know the outcome, we struggle at times, like, what does this mean? Why did he say it that way? Why wasn't he a little bit clearer? Ever wonder that? Like, why wasn't he even clearer? 
Well, when will Jesus finally make his full disclosure to the world? Jesus is very patient. He's saying things that keep pointing in a certain direction. And the Jews are scratching their heads. The disciples are saying, I, what does this mean? Well, when will he make his full disclosure to the world? Answer? In verses 28 and 29, we have a yet another statement that is not 100% clear initially, but Jesus tells us about the final disclosure of himself, his true identity to the world. Let's read it. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So, when will the full disclosure of Jesus' identity, His true identity, be made? When will his true glory be revealed to the world? When will we fully understand that Jesus is from the Father? He's been saying this, but when do we really understand it? That he really does the things that are pleasing to God. When will we know that what Jesus spoke was indeed taught by the Father? What's the answer? In verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man... The lifting up of the Son of Man makes Jesus' true identity clear. So, what does that refer to? What is the lifting up of the Son of Man? You are probably thinking, oh, that's got to be the cross. Right? I'm guessing most of you are thinking that. Well, let's just make sure that you're thinking correctly. Remember, at this stage of Jesus' ministry, the Jews were still seeking to stone Jesus. That was the end of the chapter. At this point, clearly, they're not thinking about Jesus being lifted up on a Roman cross. They're thinking about him being stoned in a street. So, Jesus' answer if it refers to the cross, must be completely lost in the Jews at this point. The fact is, even if they intended to see him crucified instead of stoned, who in his right mind would view the lifting up of the Son of Man as a crucifixion? Who would view the crucifixion as a full disclosure of his true identity? That's an execution of a criminal, right? So how could an execution be a glorification? Especially if you've read the Old Testament very carefully and you've stumbled across Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is lifted up to a throne. And when he's lifted up to that throne, he rules all the nations. Well, that sounds like they're lifting up the Son of Man. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here? We'd better explore it just a little bit further, so let's do so by turning back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus during the night on an earlier visit to Jerusalem. And Jesus explains the new birth. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in verses 14 through 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that's the same phrase we saw in chapter 8, lifted up. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now I suspect that we read those words and we assume they have something to do with Jesus being lifted up on a cross. After all, when Moses lifted up the serpent above the wilderness, in the, above the camp in the wilderness, all who looked on that serpent were spared. Likewise, the Son of Man will be lifted up and all who believe on him will have eternal life. Well, what else could he be referring to than the lifting up on the cross? That seems to be what that refers to. But is that the correct interpretation? Because Nicodemus certainly didn't get it. Nicodemus did not understand. Well, let's skip ahead now to chapter 12. Skip right over John chapter 8. Let's go to chapter 12, where the same verb lifted up is used once more. Now, back in John 8, we were roughly six months away from Jesus' death in Jerusalem. In John 12, we are less than a week. We are within days of his crucifixion. And here, curiously, Jesus still refers to the lifting up of the Son of Man as a future event. So it hasn't happened yet. John 12, or within days of his crucifixion, it's a future event. But if it's going to be fulfilled, we don't have a lot of time left. So let me give you the context. Jesus has ridden into town on his donkey. Certain Greeks have now come to see Jesus. And Jesus refers cryptically to a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying and bearing much fruit. And that's in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He seems to be saying that death brings life. And then suddenly, Jesus makes another very curious remark. It's in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now that hour, as becomes clear as we read on through John's Gospel, was a reference to the hour of his death. He's troubled by the thought of his hour now impending. Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls in the ground and produces much fruit. Now, in the midst of this trouble, Jesus says in verse 28, here's his response to that trouble that he's experiencing. Father, glorify your name. Jesus clearly intended that God's name be glorified even in his death. And suddenly, we hear this very strange voice ringing out of heaven, which we hardly hear at all in the Gospels. Keep reading. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it. Glorified what? 
my name. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God has been glorifying his name, and he intends to do it again. Well, how will that happen? Well, in verses 29 through 31, John relates the confusion that there was among the people over that voice that came out of heaven. What exactly happened there? All right, so skip over those verses and come now to verse 32 where Jesus clarifies just how God will glorify his name again. And I, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is now the third time that Jesus has referred to being lifted up from the earth. And it's the same verb that is used here, that's used in John 3 and in John chapter 8. Jesus will be lifted up from the earth and he will draw all people to himself. And again, this is what Jesus was claiming back in John 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He's saying it again. I'm going to be lifted up and I will draw people to myself. So let's summarize. Here's what we know so far. We are days away from Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem. And suddenly, two truths converge. First, God is going to glorify his name again. He's been doing it. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to glorify my name. And second, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Lifted up at long last. We've been waiting for the lifting up of the Son of Man since we heard Nicodemus back in Jerusalem in the night. But we still have the same question. When will the Son of Man be lifted up, but in such a way that God will glorify His name again? Is Jesus referring to His resurrection Is he referring to his ascension with the clouds back into heaven? Is he referring to the presentation of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days where he's given right to rule all the nations? That all sounds like the lifting up of the Son of Man. None of that is the lifting up of the Son of Man. How do I know? Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The lifting up of the Son of Man from the earth is actually a reference to his death. Now, the Son of Man was certainly lifted up from the earth in his resurrection. That is true. He was lifted up from the earth in his ascension. And he was lifted up to a throne to rule all nations. But actually, in this context, the lifting up of the Son of Man came before any of those events. He was lifted up on a cross. And at that moment, the Father glorified His name again. Friends, would you actually consider the beautiful irony of Jesus' death? His humiliation was His exaltation. His shame was His glory. His degradation was His ascension. Even while he descended in his incarnation, he ascended on his cross. What other kind of death in all the universe, in the words of verse 32, will draw all people to myself? That is a strange death. 
To this day, the world has never gotten over the death of Jesus Christ. And we never will. In fact, the passing years and centuries and millennia have only increased the attention given to that utterly amazing death. There was something uniquely ascendant about the death of Jesus Christ. It was a death like no other. It was simultaneously the most shameful and exalted death in all the universe. It was the most unjust and beautiful death the world has ever seen. Friends, it was actually a miraculous and voluntary death. It was a supernatural death that had to be. Jesus remained in full possession of his life, and he laid it down voluntarily. Friends, if Jesus' virginal conception was a miraculous entrance into this world, Jesus' death on the cross was a miraculous exit from this world. It's no wonder the centurion proclaimed, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, if you have a little trouble understanding that, let's go to one more passage. Let's turn back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where this death was actually predicted. Let's turn back to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. In fact, while you're there, why don't you just glance ahead to Isaiah chapter 53. We know that Isaiah 53 famously describes the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 contains some of the most haunting of beautiful words in all the Old Testament canon. Look at the words of Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Let's contemplate these words as we prepare our hearts for communion. The prophet says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hardly more beautiful words have ever been penned. Those words describe the death of Jesus, the suffering servant. But would you notice how the suffering servant passage is actually prefaced in Isaiah 52? If Isaiah 53 describes a shameful death, notice Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be, look at these words, high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's my servant. God's servant is exalted. God's servant is high and lifted up. So what does that refer to? His resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, the Father's right hand? No. Verse 14 as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, 
they understand. When God's servant is exalted, high and lifted up, he is totally unrecognizable in his marred, ugly, wretched human condition. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He is beyond human semblance. He looks like no wretched son of man ever carried in a mother's womb. He is beyond the children of mankind. He is beaten. He is whipped. He is pummeled by Roman soldiers and nailed to a cross. Friends, does that, does that, does that grotesque creature hanging there even belong to the human race? The answer is yes. And he will sprinkle the nations with his blood. And he will astonish the kings of the earth. And in the words of verse 15, that which they have not understood, they will suddenly understand by way of the cross. And do you recall what Jesus asked Nicodemus? Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He didn't. He doesn't understand. Did the Jews in John 8 understand? No. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. But they don't understand yet. But listen again to what Jesus claimed in John 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus was lifted up on a cross to die. And guess what happened? At that moment, Nicodemus, that earthly ruler, suddenly returned to the scene. Where has he been? And John 19 records, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also... Now interpret that through the lens of verse 15. That which they have not been told them they see. That which they have not heard they understand. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come that Jesus by night came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, who is the they? Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews, Nicodemus suddenly understands. This, this, friends, was no ordinary death. So, friends, we come to this communion table. And let me just simply ask, what other death in all the universe has drawn so much attention as the death of Jesus? Why is it that there are millions upon millions of Christians all over the world today coming to a table like this to remember that death? I will draw all men to myself. Jesus' death is without question and without parallel the most famous death in all of human history. And that ugly instrument of torture on which he died has indeed become the world's greatest symbol of hope. A cross... An instrument of torture is the most visible, transcultural, transnational, transhistorical symbol on earth. Dallas Willard writes, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted. He so graced the ugly instrument on which he died 
that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. And with the passing years, that cross is only becoming more and more famous until all the world shall hear. His humiliation was his exaltation. His shame was his glory. In the book of Acts, as the disciples go about preaching Jesus' death, they so closely associate it with his resurrection that they almost feel like a simultaneous event. Jesus was indeed lifted up on a cross, and he was placed in a grave, and he ascended to the right hand of God. And Jesus has found a way to permanently reunite heaven and earth. And that is because he is who he claimed to be. I am the great I am. So we pray together. As we go to prayer, can we just meditate on Isaiah 52? Keep your Bible open there. Isaiah 53 also. And prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table.